My name is Owen, I'm the pastor here at Emmaus, and before the kids go out for their children's church time, we are going to have our offering, but during the offering, we're gonna begin our first Advent reading of, of the year. Today is the first Sunday of Advent. Advent is the celebration of the coming, the appearing of Jesus. It's that time of anticipation where the people all throughout Scripture, you see the anticipation of the coming of the Messiah. And as Christians, in those Sundays leading up to Christmas, we celebrate, we anticipate what it means for Jesus to be the light of the world. And so, as a church family, each Sunday leading up to Christmas, we're gonna have an Advent reading and then a lighting of one of the candles and then on Christmas Eve, Christmas Day service, we'll, we'll light the center Christ candle. I know many of you at your homes, and this is the reason we wanted the kids to be in here for this time. I know many of you at your homes, you have Advent traditions, either using the Jesse tree or lighting Advent candles at home, using one of those resources with your kids. The beauty of Advent is Christmas should never sneak up on us. Uh, I know that's almost impossible in the world we live in, but it never sneaks up on us, and particularly for your kids and your grandkids that the meaning of Christmas would never sneak up on them, that they would know what this time is about. So I'm gonna pray for us, and after I pray, if you're helping with the offering, if you would pass those plates, and then Greg and Krista Jones are going to lead our Advent time this morning. So let me pray, and after that, we'll have the offering and the Advent reading. Father, thank you for those psalms that talk about the joy and the anticipation of the coming of Christ. We live on the other side of that, so it's sometimes difficult for us to understand what it was for the people to wait for the Messiah, to wait for the ruler. We're not very good at waiting, uh, and oftentimes we, we miss what it is to celebrate Christmas as the coming of Jesus Christ, as the Messiah, as the light of the world. And so as a church family, God, let us use something like Advent, a gift from you, what it is to anticipate the coming of Christ. Thank you for a church that serves, that gives, that loves one another. And Father, may this celebration of Advent be worship to you and may it be unifying for our church family. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Let's have the offering and the Advent reading now. When I was growing up, we always celebrated Advent at my church, and it was one of my favorite things about the holiday season. And so when Pastor Owen contacted us to take part in this, I was thrilled, and Greg was excited too. So today marks the beginning of the celebration of Advent, traditionally the four Sundays prior to Christmas Day. Throughout the centuries, the church has used many symbols which remind us of the mighty God we serve. This morning, we begin lighting of the candles of the Advent wreath. The candles remind us of Christ. He is the light that has come into the world. The purple candles speak of his royalty, and the one pink candle symbolizes our joy in Christ. The large white candle in the center represents the purity of Christ himself. Each Sunday during Advent, we will light an additional candle as we anticipate celebrating the birth of Jesus. Then, in the Christmas service, all of the candles will be lit as we proclaim that Christ has come, God with us. Today, we will light the first candle, the candle of hope. Throughout history, God's people have held tightly in hope to his promises. 
Even after sin took hold in the Garden of Eden, God made a promise. He promised to send a rescuer who would defeat sin and death. This rescuer would be Jesus. But God did not send Jesus to his people right away. God waited thousands of years to send the rescuer. During that time, God's people faced many hard things as we still do today. While the people waited, God gave them hints and clues about how Jesus would come, what he would do, and what he would be like. These hints, written in scriptures by the prophets, would help God's people wait. Each time God made and kept a promise, he, it helped his children trust that he would be faithful to his promise to send Jesus to rescue them. Some days, God's children waited patiently. Some days, they waited with tears and frustration, as we still do today. Some days, they wondered if God had forgotten his promise, but God continued to whisper it over and over again as his children waited. And one day, when no one was expecting it, Jesus the Messiah came. The Advent happened. You may be facing difficulty during this holiday season and need hope. Remember that because of Jesus' coming, we have hope. We have assurance that he is with us and that he has conquered sin and death. 1 Peter 1.3 says, Because of God's great mercy, we have living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Thank you, Jesus, for hope. Thank you, Greg and Krista, for leading that time. If you'd like, take your Bible and turn to Proverbs chapter 6. Krista talked about how Advent was part of her church experience growing up. For me, I wasn't introduced to Advent until, frankly, I was probably in late college, maybe even seminary uh, days when we were living in New Orleans. And so this has been a new experience, a new learning time for me, but to see the joy of what it is for a church family to to understand the coming of Jesus and to celebrate together as part of our worship. Next Sunday uh, will be our 30th anniversary celebration as a church family, like Jim mentioned earlier. Uh, Reverend uh, Robin Butler, who was the first pastor of Emmaus Baptist Church, will be here to, to preach next Sunday, and it'll be a service with a lot of different things going on, preschool and children's choirs doing different things, so it's going to be exciting, exciting service next week as we come together celebrating God's faithfulness to us uh, here at Emmaus. We've been studying through the book of Proverbs, and we'll continue to do that in different ways, even moving into, into the new year. Uh, but one of the things we've talked about in studying Proverbs is the practice of reading a proverb every day. So matching the calendar date, you would just read a proverb matching, uh, matching that date. So today being the 27th, you'd read Proverbs 27 or maybe one proverb from that chapter of Proverbs each day. Someone told me about a neat practice that they have that I thought was a great idea. They, for family and friends, depending on that person's birth date, they'll write their name out to that side of the chapter of Proverbs. So if you have family or friends who have a birth date on the 27th, you just write their name out 
outside of Proverbs chapter 27, and then every month you're going through reading one of those Proverbs, and you're praying for that person on that day of the month. It seemed like a great idea, how you're trying to incorporate prayer and Bible study into, into your life, and so if that's something that, that's helpful for you, maybe a practice that you want to uh, you want to start, or you may have an Advent reading plan, just whatever we're doing to get into God's Word together, saying we want this to be the center of who we are as a church, who we are as families, who we are as individuals, that we're, we're centered on, on God's Word. So this morning, we're going to continue in Proverbs chapter 6, and we're focusing on verses 12 through the end of the chapter, and really we're mainly focusing on verses 12 through 15. Uh, we're going to read through the end of the chapter, but the core of what we're looking at is, is 12 through 15. So here we go. Proverbs chapter 6, starting in verse 12. A worthless person, a wicked man, goes about with crooked speech, winks with his eyes, signals with his feet, points with his finger, with perverted heart devises evil, continually sowing discord. Therefore, calamity will come upon him suddenly. In a moment, he will be broken beyond healing. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. Father, thank you again for the gift of corporate worship. Thank you for what it means to come together to be reminded of the good news of Jesus, to be reminded that we're not in this by ourselves, that you've connected our lives with one another. Both those who are visiting with us this morning and those who are a part of Emmaus, something different out of our week to slow us down, to remind us of your goodness and of the hope that we have in Christ and what it looks like to follow after him. So, Father, show us that in a fresh way, in a new way on this first Sunday of Advent. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Who hasn't wished they had a piece of tape over their mouth at certain times in life? Like, words, words come out and you think, oh, my word, why were those words not, not taped inside my mouth? We, we know the pain of speaking a word that should have never come out. We know the pain of receiving a word that shouldn't have come out of somebody else's mouth. But equally so... Words, and we see that in that verse there in Ephesians chapter 4, and we're going to see in Proverbs 6 this morning, words, if used rightly, are for the building up of others. So words can either tear down, you know, as Tom Elliff, who was the pastor at First Southern Dell City for a long time, as he would talk about the curse of a word, of hearing a word and it gets stuck in your mind. It's a negative thing that someone says to you and you just can't get past it and it continues to affect you for years and years into your future. But we also know the power of a positive word, the right word spoken into our lives at the right time and the impact that that has. It's no surprise that when you come to wisdom literature in the Bible and you run into the book of Proverbs, it's no surprise that there's a lot of information in here, a lot of lessons about what we should say and what we shouldn't say. Because of all the sins that go with us every day, it's what oftentimes comes out of our mouth that most defines us. It most defines, are we following the Lord or are we not following the Lord? In Proverbs chapter six, and I think you can see this if you turn your bulletin over and look at, at the back, I've kind of laid out where we've come from and where we're going to go. Proverbs chapter six is pretty much divided into four parts. 
You have the speculator. Uh, that was what we looked at last week where you take on someone else's debt. You, you put up security or co-sign for someone else's debt. I hope that what I said last week didn't take away your desire to give and to serve others and help others. It just matters how we do that. It's not our job to be someone else's savior to get entangled in their situation. So that was the speculator who tried to co-sign on someone's loan to get rich or get something for themselves. The sluggard is the lazy person, uh, the one who wants everyone else to take care of them, who doesn't work, who sleeps all the time, who's always looking, doesn't have anything to provide for anyone else, and so it deals with that. At the end of chapter six, and this also happened at the end of chapter five and really goes all throughout Proverbs chapters one through nine, but is the idea of sexual unfaithfulness. In the middle of that is this person that we're gonna call the scoundrel. Uh, the scoundrel because it starts with an S, but also because it just works well with what's going on here in Proverbs chapter six. So there's the speculator, the sluggard, the scoundrel, and the sexually unfaithful that makes up chapter six. And I wanna show you some this morning about how those four fit together as we focus in on these verses this morning. So let's look at verse 12. If you're looking in your phone or, or in your Bible, we're gonna start there in verse 12. It begins by saying, there's a worthless person this wicked man who goes about with crooked speech. Well, who is this person that's being talked about here? The idea of wicked is pretty straightforward. It's someone who is not moral, who, who's causing trouble. But that word worthless is the word we want to focus on because it's, it's a pretty unique word. The word worthless there in the old King James and, and I've gone out of my way to say, I think the King James, when it comes to the book of Proverbs, has some of the best translations. The King James here, is, it's just awkward. Uh, it translates as that word naughty. Now, naughty is not a word that many of us are gonna use to describe someone maybe in, in this day and age, but what the King James is trying to do with the word naughty there is it's tying into the original meaning of that word, which meant good for nothing, or, or someone who didn't profit anyone else. This was the person who was always out for themselves, who didn't do any good for anyone else, didn't provide any profit for anyone else, and it just gives you free reign to call somebody else naughty, I guess, in, in this sense. But we wanna make sure we know what we're talking about here. This is a worthless person. It shows up a couple of other places in the book of Proverbs, this same term, worthless. Proverbs chapter 16, verses 27 to 28, a worthless man plots evil, and his speech is like a scorching fire. Words and fire is also used in the book of James in, in the New Testament, so you've got a connection there. A dishonest man spreads strife, and a whisperer separates close friends. Elementary and junior high and high school students, it might be worth marking Proverbs sixteen twenty eight. A whisperer separates close friends. As you go throughout life, you find that to be true. If someone is whispering behind your back, if they're always whispering to one another, there's a good chance that what they're doing is they're trying to cause dissension. They're trying to divide close friends. So a whisperer divides close friends. Proverbs 19:28: a worthless witness mocks at justice and the mouth of the wicked devours iniquity. So over and over again, you can see this idea that the worthless person who's good for nothing they don't add anything to society, they don't add anything to your life, they're always taking from you, and they do that with their speech, particularly. So you go back to verse 12 in Proverbs 6, and it says, a worthless person, a wicked man, 
goes about with crooked speech. In the book of Proverbs, you'll find these uh, distinctions between crooked and straight, and it doesn't have as much to do with life choices like who do I marry, what job do I have, where do I go to school. Crooked and straight in the book of Proverbs is about whether or not it's according to God's will. So if you go straight, you're living morally. You're living according to God's will, how God wants you to live. If you live in a crooked way, you're not walking according to God's way. You're, you're trying out different things. You're going from place to place. You're living in a deceptive way. And I think that idea of deception is gonna become very clear as we start to look at these verses. And this is the point at deception that you start to see how these passages in Proverbs 6 fit together. Because when we are talking about the person being lazy or idle, when you get to the New Testament, you get to 1 Timothy chapter 5, and there's these verses about widows and how a widow should act, but it really, it applies across the board. First Timothy 5, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. In the book of Proverbs, you have a section on laziness, and the very next, next section is about people saying what they shouldn't be saying. In 1 Timothy, Paul's talking about these people who are causing trouble. The first problem is they're idler. They're, they're not doing anything. The second is they're using their words to cause harm. They're, they're gossiping. They're slandering other people. There's just a basic life lesson that the person who sits and isn't active, isn't doing things that they should be doing, is often the first one to be talking about other people. We, this is the Monday morning quarterback uh, problem. The guy who sits there in his chair, who couldn't throw a ball five feet if he wanted to, but he definitely knows why somebody else caused problems. You know, you don't do anything, but you speak about other people. We're always wanting to be cautious about that. It doesn't matter if it's your business, if it's your family, if it's your church. If someone is lazy and they're talking about things they shouldn't be talking about, there's usually a reason. It's usually because those two things go together in some way. Then you get to the next verse in verse 13. So this worthless person goes about with crooked speech. Verse 13, winks with his eyes, signals with his feet, points with his finger. All right, now what's going on in, in these verses? What we've done in these verses is you've moved from verbal communication to nonverbal communication. So Verbally, this person who's worthless is deceptive, is crooked. Equally so with their nonverbal communication, they're also deceptive. This idea of winking with his eyes, signaling with his feet, pointing with his fingers, what it gives off the idea of is he's always trying to trick people. He's always trying to deceive people. Now, couples know that nonverbal communication is very important. It shows up in different ways. One of the ways is if you're at a party or you're at some sort of social gathering, and it's time to leave that social gathering, this is very important, guys, as you start to have relationships and, and move toward marriage, this is very important. Couples have to have nonverbal cues for how to get out of that party, how to get out of that social gathering. Like, I'm, I'm the type of person who, going into a social gathering, I could not feel more uncomfortable in that setting. My wife is in her sweet spot. She's talking to people, she's going around. She knows, though, 
that if I need to go, like if I have to escape that party or that social gathering, you've got to have these nonverbal cues to let the other person know it's time to leave. Like it's, it's time to get out of here. What's even worse is when you don't understand each other's nonverbal cues. Like you're trying to communicate, we've got to get out of here, but the other person isn't getting it and it just it falls apart. This is about how it's not just our words that get us into trouble, it's our nonverbal communication that gets us into trouble. And specifically, it's the idea of deceiving. We don't know that we can ever trust this person. They, they say one thing and they do another. That leads us to verse 14. What causes this? Why would someone speak and live in this way? Verse 14, with perverted heart, they devise evil. This connects into what Jesus said in Luke chapter six, the good person out of the good treasure of the heart produces good, the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So you say something and you think, where did that come from? Why did I say that? Why did those words come out of my mouth? And the really scary answer from scripture is it came from your heart. And I don't know about you, but that bothers me because I want to think better of myself. Like, surely that's not reflective of me. Maybe those words were just, they just came out of nowhere. And no, scripture says it came from your heart. Those words were an overflow of things you've been thinking about, things you've been processing, things that you've been storing up in your heart. Scripture says that where we spend our money, and the words that we use will reveal what is in our hearts. So we need to always be paying attention to this. James chapter three, James is one of the New Testament examples of wisdom literature of the book of Proverbs. James chapter three says, from the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? In other words, let's have our mouth be consistent. We want to speak about the things that, that are right. Proverbs chapter four says, we keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Put away from you crooked speech and put devious talk far from you. We have to have our hearts guarded because out of our heart is where those words come. And if our heart is not right before the Lord, if our heart is not right toward others, then the words that come out are not going to be right toward others. The speculator would get entangled with other people. The sluggard was lazy at work. The sexually immoral, it wasn't just that they needed another computer program, it was the problem was in their heart. And this is what we wanna see how chapter six comes together. And follow me on this to make sure this makes sense. There is an on-the-surface way, on-the-surface way that you can address these problems, and then there's a heart level that you can address these problems. And this especially comes up in the ways that we parent, in the ways that we talk to our kids, in the ways that we talk to teenagers. It's so tempting as a parent, and it's so tempting when you're looking at someone else's life to deal with the on-the-surface issue. They're taking advantage of somebody else, they're being lazy, they're being sexually immoral, they're not speaking kind words, and we're geared into addressing that surface behavior. But what scripture says over and over again is that surface behavior is coming because of something that is in their heart. And it's so much more difficult to address interior issues. It's so much more difficult to address issues of the heart. But what we try to do is we want to parent toward the heart. 
We want a parent's award what is on the inside comes out because if all I do is address the surface issues, I haven't gotten to the core issue. And so as you think about your kids and your grandkids, you think about what we're trying to do as a church family, as you think about even grown adults that you're in relationships with, be careful that we don't miss the heart because we're so focused on the surface issue. We're so focused on the words and not what's going on inside. And it's, it's amazing how you see this come up over and over again in scripture. And the thing that comes out of that is it, because it's an issue of the heart, we can never fix someone else's heart. That is always a work of the Lord. And so what we do as parents and grandparents is we point kids to the gospel. We point them to the hope of Christ knowing that it's he who is able to change our heart. Because I can change my kids' words, but I can't change their heart. That's something that the Lord does. You go on down in in verse 14. So what comes as a result of this? At the end of verse 14, it says, With perverted heart they devise evil, and they continually sow discord. One of the commentators on Proverbs, Dwayne Garrett, says, The scoundrel is someone who works to undermine social and personal relationships for his own benefit. So this idea that they're continually sowing discord, they're using their words and they're planting a word in a relationship or they're planting their word in some sort of social structure with the hopes that it's going to tear that group apart. Teenagers, you guys know what this looks like. Adults, you know what this looks like in your workplace and your family. People come along and they know how to put words into groups in such a way that it causes all of this disunity, all of this trouble, all of this evil to spread because they're sowing discord with these words. And wrong words, wrong speech will always lead to disunity. It will always lead to discord. So what's the result of that? Verse 15 says, therefore calamity will come upon him suddenly in a moment he will be broken beyond healing. This is where irony takes over. So the one who has been trying to sow discord, has been trying to tear others down, will ultimately find himself torn down. This is the idea, it's not our job to take revenge, the Lord is the one who is just. The Lord is the one who will deal with these things. But it always comes back around. People who sow unkind, untrue words into a situation will always see that come full circle in some way back to themselves. So what are the characteristics of a scoundrel? They're really, these verses lay out three characteristics of a scoundrel. Divisive words from a hateful heart. Divisive words from a hateful heart. They can't be trusted in their words or their actions, and it always ends in brokenness for himself and for others. So what we're trying to do is we're trying to figure out what is the opposite of that. We don't want to be a scoundrel. We want to be wise. How do we do that? What are the characteristics of wisdom? Well, you just take those and you flip them over. And what you find on the other side is the first characteristic of wise speech, unifying words that come from a loving heart. If you want to know what it looks like to be wise with your words, it's unifying words that build others up, that build up the group, and it comes from a loving heart. Ephesians chapter 4 helps us address this. Ephesians 4 is where that verse from the video earlier came, Ephesians 4.29, Earlier in that chapter, Paul is talking about the work of Christ specifically in a church. And it says, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, 
joined and held together. So this passage is about the unity of the body by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. When words are spoken in love, when they're words that build up others, when they're words that bring unity, then the body of Christ is going to be built up. With our words, we can either give life and build others up, or we take life from others and and we tear them down, we tear down the groups. We're always aiming in this direction. When you think about this idea of, of unity, I want to brag and, and, and talk for just a minute about the role of a deacon body in a church. Depending on your church background, the idea of deacons may seem, seem kind of strange or, or different, but deacons are the leading servants in a church. And earlier in 1 Timothy 5, we looked at that passage about widows who were being idle and were being busybodies and gossips and causing trouble in the community. And one of the roles in the New Testament for deacons is to be able to meet the needs of of those who are widows, of those who are hurting. One of the main roles, and I would even argue the main role for deacons when you go back to Acts chapter six and you look in 1 Timothy, is to bring unity, to promote unity in a church for the purpose of the gospel continuing to spread. And so when our deacons meet together, one of their main goals is how do we, as a deacon body, communicate with the church family in such a way that we promote unity in the church body? Because we know what it's like to be a part of groups, and even worse, we know what it's like to be a part of churches sometimes, where words get in there under the surface and they start to take root, and then bitterness grows up, and bitterness turns into envy, and then envy turns into all kinds of troublemaking. You need groups. You need people in your church family who will step up and say, you know what, I love these people, and I love the Lord, and for the good of the church, I'm going to speak words that unify. I'm gonna speak words that bring us together. And we all play a role in that. Not just deacons, we all play a role in that. And, And frankly, I feel the weight of that as the pastor. What am I doing with my words to unify us, to bring us together in such a way that we love others? That leads to the next point. The next point is that we speak true words. So the words that are unifying are also words that are true. Here's the reason this matters. There's a false form of unity in which you say whatever you need to say in order just to keep people happy. And what happens at this point ties into what we talked about earlier with our heart. There's a type of unity in a group, whether it's a sports team, or a band, or a business, or a church, there's a type of unity that is only surface level. It's a type of unity where people will kick things under the rug, they'll kick the can down the road, and all they wanna do is preserve surface unity. Under the surface, things are falling apart. There's incredible disunity. What we're aiming for is unity that comes because we're speaking the truth to one another. It's unity that comes through hard conversations. It's unity that comes when we say what we mean and we mean what we say. This will help you in your family, it'll help you in your marriage, it'll help you in your church, it'll help you in your business. When we speak true words, it means we say what we mean and we mean what we say. This is something I struggle with personally. My natural inclination is to say whatever I need to say just to keep peace in the situation. And what you end up doing in those situations is inside you feel one thing, 
but the words that come out don't match what you, what you really think on the inside. On Wednesday nights here in Emmaus, we've been talking about how we share the gospel with people of other religions. So how do you communicate Christianity to someone who comes from a Hindu background or a Buddhist background? One of the things we talked about a couple of weeks ago is communicating Christianity to someone who comes from a Muslim background. In Muslim theology and Muslim practice, there's something called taqiyah, which is this idea that I can smile at someone, but in my heart, I'm really angry toward them. In other words, the things that I say and the way that I look toward them is one reality, but on the inside, I actually hate that person. When I read that, I realized, man, that's not, that's not a Muslim issue. That's a human issue. Like, that's something that we all struggle with. We live in the South. People say, bless your heart, all the time, and they really don't mean, you know, bless your heart. We've talked about this before. Like, just because somebody smiles at you and says something kind doesn't mean that that reflects what's coming from the core. They're not necessarily saying what they mean, and we don't always mean what we say. But as Christians, unified in Christ, one of the ways that we experience freedom and one of the ways we experience joy, and this will bring freedom and joy in your marriage and family too, is when you trust the other person that the words that came out of their mouth were exactly what they really meant. And when you can trust someone on that level, it builds a unity and a freedom and a joy into that relationship that goes beyond anything we could ever manufacture on the surface. And so when we talk about our words and being wise with our words, one of the things we always wanna fight for is just meaning what we say and saying what we mean. That leads to the third thing. The third way to be wise with your words is that our words will match our actions. We don't wanna be like the scoundrel here in Proverbs 6 that winks with his eyes and shuffles his feet and points with his fingers and so we're saying one thing but we're doing something else. It's confusing for kids and it's confusing for adults when they hear words that don't match actions. This is one of the struggles that we always face in church life is people will use that word hypocrite. Nine times out of 10, it's a false label. It's just thrown out there as a social grenade But the times that it is true, hypocrite means that we say one thing about Jesus and then our actions, our lives look completely different and our words and our actions are causing confusion with what it really means to follow Jesus. And so one of the ways we're wise with our words as Christians is we want our words and our actions to match up. So how do we go from unwise words to wise words? How do we go from being a scoundrel to being a saint? Well, you can't force this. This is not pick yourself up by your own bootstraps. There's something else going on here. I want to show you a graphic on the screen. And we've used this before, and I know it's going to be a little bit hard to see, but let me kind of walk you through it, and then uh, we'll see kind of the way it works. Up in the top left is a circle that's God's design for our life. Wise words. These are words that come from a loving heart. They're unifying. They're true. They're consistent with our words and our actions. Anytime we move away from God's design for our life, that's called sin. It's when our heart becomes evil, it's when we're divisive, untrue, inconsistent, and sin leads to brokenness, which we saw in Proverbs 6.15. The only hope for brokenness is not to say to yourself over and over again, be kind, be kind, say nice words, do a better job. That's a moralistic human approach to trying to solve this problem, and that's not what scripture points us toward. The way that we deal with unwise words is we repent 
we turn away from that and we believe in the power of Jesus Christ to redeem us, to shape our lives from the inside out, to lead us in a new direction. And so we experience the gospel, we experience Advent, Christ coming at work in our lives, and that leads us to pursue God's design for our lives, which is to speak kind words. What we're driving at here is the idea that the hope of being wise, the hope of being couples and families and businesses and sports teams and bands and churches that are wise with our words, it's not found in just trying harder. It's found when we experience the good news of Jesus in our lives. When we repent and we turn to him and he changes us from the inside out. We can try harder for a little while, but it will always let us down. It's when we turn to Christ. And here's the beauty of this, and here's how we kind of bring this to a close. Today is the first Sunday of Advent. When we think about Advent and we think about the coming of Christ, we think about John chapter 1. John chapter 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The story of Christmas, the story of Advent, is that the word of God came to the people so that they would know what hope really is, so they would know what wisdom really is, so they would know what life really is. How did that word of God come to us? Well, John 1.14 says, the word became flesh, and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The hope of Advent is that we would hear the word of God, we would experience the word of God in such a way that it transforms our lives from the inside out. How is my life transformed? It's transformed from the inside out as the word of God through the person of Jesus Christ, gets to work in my heart and begins to shape me, begins to get rid of that that's not matching God's word, begins to reshape what I really care about, what I'm really focused on, and then the actions that come from that begin to flow naturally. I'm not having to force myself to speak unifying words. I'm not having to speak, force myself to say what I mean. I'm not having to force myself to speak in loving ways. It's because it comes from a heart that's been transformed. My prayer for your life and for your marriage and for your family this Christmas season is that the word of God would so get hold of your heart and so get hold of your life that you would know what it is to be transformed from the inside out. Maybe the thing that needs to happen this Christmas, the thing that needs to happen this Advent season leading up to Christmas is that you're refocus in some way on God's word and say, I know that Christmas represents the coming of the word of God. I need God's word to come in my life. Why do I need God's word to come in my life? Because the words that come out of my mouth probably should have been taped inside yesterday. Or the words that came out of my mouth last week probably should have been taped inside. And worse than that, I know they came from a heart that was not pure, was not right before the Lord, and I need to be transformed. And so as Jesus changes from the inside out, what's the result? We speak truthful, unifying, hopeful words that give life to others, and we begin to hate what God hates, and we begin to love what God loves. And we see the message of Christmas 
coming to fruition in our own lives, in our own families, in this church, that that would happen. Let me pray for us, and we're gonna conclude our service by singing the last psalm together. Father, I pray that as we think about Advent season, as we think about Christmas, this year, God, that we would think about our words, that we would think about what those words reveal about our heart, God, I pray for the kids, the elementary kids that are here this morning, all the way up to the oldest adults. God, that we would know what it is to speak words that are unifying, loving, true, hopeful, life-giving. And we would speak those words because we've experienced your word. We know what it is for the word of God focused on Jesus Christ to be at work in our lives. And Father, if we've spoken things this last week that have been hurtful and divisive, God, that we would have the sort of grief that drives us to repentance. God, if kids have spoken against their parents or grandparents or parents have spoken against their kids, if friends have been divided because of a word spoken by someone else. God, I pray that you would bring healing and you would bring hope. God, let us be a church where people are able to hear the word of God, able to experience the word of God through Jesus Christ, and able to see their lives transformed as a result. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.